rest of the chapter. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. So last time you remember, it was tough, right? Jesus was rebuking his disciples for their lack of faith. Um, they had forgotten about the 5,000 and, the, you know, and, the, and the, the baskets left over. And Jesus said to him, how did you forget this stuff so soon? You know, and he's like, where's your mind at? Where's your head at? You know? And um, their spiritual forgetfulness. Before we move on past that, where we were at last week, I think it's good just to ponder for a second that this passage begins with these people, these same disciples, still in the boat with Jesus. He's still with them. He loves them all the way to the end. Remember in the Gospel of John, it says that he loved his own. He loved them all the way to the end. Jesus worked with average people, just like us, spiritually forgetful, weak in the faith, forgetful, you know, all these things, um, lacking understanding. Those are the type of people Jesus chooses to work with him. And, and he wants to love them. He loved them all the way to the end. He washed their feet. He got down and washed their feet, right? These disciples were not spiritual giants, right? And so when he rebuked them for their weak faith, I don't want you to get the idea that he's like, you stupid disciples, I can't believe your weak faith and whipping them and like, I don't know, man. It's not like that at all. He knows every weakness before you were ever created. He knows that. He knows that about you. He knew that about them. And so he's just in the business of building people up and encouraging them and drawing faith out of them and correcting them and, and building them, you know, and loving them and showing the love of the Father to uh, to people, right? And that's really encouraging that they're still in the boat with him this time, right? So I want you to rest in that today. If you, you know, possibly get down on yourself like I do, you know, at times, you need to be easy on yourself, you know? You really do. Don't beat yourself up. God knows everything about you. He knows that you're dust. He knows you're weak. And he gave his life on the cross for you, knowing every single thing that you would do or wouldn't do in life. And he still chose you. And God doesn't choose mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. He chose you on purpose. He has a purpose for you. And so, hmm, these guys had seen the miracles. They'd seen it firsthand. You and I haven't seen anything like that. How much more mercy do you think he has for us and grace? So, with that in mind, we're going to get into the rest of the passage. It's very simple today. The outline um, is, is a three-part outline. Last time we looked at verses 1 through 12 and we said, you know, Christians need to have the correct concerns, right? He's like, um, Jesus is like, you're thinking about bread. You know, we should be thinking about spiritual things. That was last time, the correct concern. And now this time, uh, three C words, uh, the correct confession, commission, and then commitment. So one, two, and three, confession is verses 13 through 20, com uh, commission, verses 21 through 23, and correct commitment, verses 24 through 28. This message are, you know, sometimes the message is simply, are there some things in this passage that we just need to believe? that we need to know and believe. And that's this sort of passage. It's filled with things that we need to know, understand, and believe as Christians. And so we need to understand the correct confession. Like, who is he? Not what is he like? Not, you know, what did he look like? Nothing. Like, who is he? The correct confession. Then we need to understand the correct commission. What I mean by that is, what was he commissioned to do? 
Why did Jesus come? That's in the passage here. And then the last part, the correct commitment. What does he expect from people that would desire to follow him? So that's where we're going. Lord, open our eyes. Bless the words of a mere man uh, through the foolishness of preaching. May your spirit speak to all of us here, God, because we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. The correct confession, verses 13. uh, Let's start at verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. At that point, there's a pretty big division in the gospel of Matthew. Remember we talked about this last time? The beginning of the gospel of Matthew up until this point has primarily been Matthew displaying who Jesus is. And then beginning at verse 21, it's actually going to be more focused on what Jesus came to do. Um, or you would say the passion. You guys know what we mean when we say the passion? It's like, what, what was Jesus' passion? What did he come here for? That's the rest of the book of Matthew. So let's just go through this then verse by verse. I'm going to stop reading where we are at because that's kind of just a different section and we'll tackle that when we get there. Verse 13, so they came to Caesarea Philippi. Now, I've shown you on the map here uh, where Caesarea Philippi is, if you want to take a look at it. So they're around uh, Galilee uh, is this area and right here. And this is primarily where a lot of Jesus' ministry took place, right? And so now this is where they're at. They were at Bethsaida last time. They came from Magdala over what's underneath here, Gennesaret. It's in that area. And they took the boat. They went to Bethsaida. And now they're going up to Caesarea Philippi, right? Caesarea, you recognize kind of the word Caesar, you know, names after Caesar, Philippi, because Philip the Tetrarch was the governor there. He was the brother of Herod Antipas, which is the Herod we talked about a few weeks ago. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. This place, um, this is one of the sources of the Jordan River. So right around in here, there's like a natural spring. And by that, it's this really cool, you know, area, water area. And in the cliffs around there, there are carvings. There was a head of Caesar. There are all kinds of carvings of other different idols and pagan gods. Rumor has it that this is where the god Pan was born, was in a cave in Caesarea Philippi. So it became a place known for Pan worship. Uh, It was called Panius. Then later when it was taken over by the Arabs, it was called Banius because typically the Arabs can't pronounce their P's very well, so they changed the name of it. So all that to be said for this is kind of a place of Gentiles. It's a place of idolatry, but it'd be a quiet place for Jesus to take his disciples and get away and start building into them. And that's what we're going to see really in the rest of the gospel of Matthew is he's pulling these guys aside, pouring into them, and it's no longer really about these huge messages to these huge crowds. It's, it's not really that point anymore. You remember when Jesus started speaking in parables and then it started becoming focused on this group? He's going to turn the whole thing over to them, right? Now, 
So Jesus is probably taking them up there to get away and to kind of have a retreat and pour into them. By the way, do you ever notice Jesus doing that with you? Has Jesus ever told you, you need to come aside for a little bit and just kind of get quiet with the Lord and just take some time, you know? Your parents are like, yeah, this guy doesn't know what it's like to have kids at all. Well, you know, all I'm saying is do you notice him doing it? I'm not saying you have time to do it, you know, and God willing, maybe you will someday. Um, but he does that because he cares about you. He doesn't want you at a frantic pace all the time, and he, he wants to pour into you. He wants to build into you and grow you, and, and that's what he's doing with these guys most likely. And so he asks them, who do men say that I am? Now, in that background, that setting, these, all this pagan idolatry, it might be something like, who do men you know, say that I am? What's the rumor going around about me? And now Jesus isn't asking this because he's trying to gauge how popular he is. It's, he's not like trying to find out how many followers he has on like, you know, Snapchat and stuff like that and, and how many likes he has on the Facebook, right? He's, he's not concerned about how popular he is. What he's trying to do is he's trying to, he's going to ask them a question in a second. We read it like, who, but who do you say that I am? But he's, he's, you know, what does this world say about me? And they just fire right back. Well, some John the Baptist, some, you know, and then he lists these other people, Elijah, Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. There obviously were a lot of opinions about Jesus floating around. Now, anybody that would give these sort of answers doesn't understand too much about Jesus, obviously, because if you know the Old Testament scriptures, you would know that Jesus is different than these people. But they probably saw some things like, you know, Jeremiah, you know, was called the weeping prophet, right? And Jesus probably wept. He did weep. We read that. And maybe they saw that and said, oh, he's Jeremiah, you know. One thing that's interesting is all of these answers, since they knew that all these men were dead, it would have implied something supernatural, right? So um, the supernatural character of Jesus was like well-known, Right? It was, that was the thing. There's something about this guy. There's a lot of people like that today. Well, we just don't really know who he is exactly, but we know there's something about him. You know, before you followed Christ, and maybe you followed Christ your whole life, but if you haven't, you know, before you followed Christ, you know, there's something about Jesus. There's just something about this name, this guy. And they knew there was just something about him. So he turns to the disciples in verse 15. He says, but who do you say that I am? Now, that, in there, in the Greek text, you is plural. So what does that mean? It means he's talking to the group of disciples, multiple people. Who do you, as a group, say that I am? And you is also emphatic there. So it would have been like, what do they say? Well, that's fine what they say. Good. But who do you say that I am? He's expecting that his disciples would have something different to say about him than just the world would. Here is the question. But who do you say that I am? They've observed him closely for months, watched him do his ministry, heard his teaching, observed his interactions with people, the miracles. And here's the most important question of their lives. Now, today, you might not have worked through every single thing theologically, spiritually. You might not have. You might not have end times figured out exactly. I mean, there's so much stuff there to know. You might not have spiritual gifts all worked out. We might not know exactly how all that works. You might not know like about creation, Genesis, is it literal? You might not have all that stuff worked out. And you know, that's okay. I'll tell you, lighten up on yourself. That's okay. But this question, you either have this right or you don't. And the 
if you do or you don't, it's pretty serious. It's a, it's a pretty serious thing because uh, a Christian, this is what makes a Christian, is they, they understand who Jesus is, uh, you know, and then it's what they do with that information that determines whether they're a Christian or not. So Simon Peter, he speaks out, and he frequently speaks for the group, if you've noticed that. And he says, you are the Christ. How much Peter really understands at this point is unknown. The disciples obviously didn't really know much about the suffering of Christ, you know, and, and the cross and all this. They had this idea that the Messiah was going to be a political military leader and he was going to bring liberation from the Romans. And uh, so how much he understood, uh, we don't know, but he says, you are the Christ. Now, the word Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. It's not... Uh, it's a title, actually. It's not, it's not a name. I thought it was his last name for the longest time. I had no idea um, what it was. It's actually a title. Um, in the Greek, it's the word Christos. And what Christos means is it just simply just means the anointed one. Well, what does anointed mean? Well, it's kind of like appointed in a way. It's kind of like, um, you know, when David, King David was uh, going to become king, uh, Samuel the prophet went to him and he poured oil over his head and he anointed him right? Um, he said, God has called you and equipped you and set you apart for this. That's kind of what it means to be anointed. This term throughout the Old Testament is used to describe God's priests, prophets, and kings. Now, all of those in the Old Testament look forward to the priest, prophet, and king, which is Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of those anointed prophet, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. So that term, the anointed one, is what Peter calls him. You are the Messiah. You're the one that God has equipped, enabled, called, set to do this job. You are the one. You are the one to bring deliverance. And Peter calls that out. And he says another, then he adds something else to it. And he says, the son of the living God that is a very significant term right there. If you were a Jew in this day, what you would understand, how you would understand this is that he is calling Jesus God. Jesus claimed to be the son of God. You read in the book of John, the gospel of John, and it says that they wanted to kill him for blasphemy because he was calling himself the son of God. He was making himself equal with God. That term, the son of is making himself equal with. It's not necessarily how we understand the term son of today. Well, he's a son. Well, that, it's a different meaning there. It's, he's putting him right on par with God. He's saying he is God. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus, is he was claiming to be God, right? Now, when Peter calls him that, he says he's the son of the living God. Now, the living God is a title that's used throughout the Old Testament in many places as well. Um, Psalm 42, verse 2, as an example, says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come bef appear before God, right? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see that term throughout the whole Old Testament, living God in a whole bunch of places. Now, as he's standing in Caesarea Philippi amongst all the idols, maybe it's even more, you know, more like, hey, you're the living God versus all these other you know, dead ones around here. You know? You're the true and living God. And look what Jesus says in response in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. 
Uh, that's his legal name, Bar-Jonah. He was the son of Jonah. It was his dad's name, apparently. And then he says something really interesting. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's confession of faith did not come to him by human reason, by human intellect. It came by the Father doing a work in his heart. And so Peter might not have had it all figured out, but he spoke what was on his heart, right? Now, it seems pretty non-weird, right? Like Peter just spoke out and answered this question, right? But Jesus is, hey, you didn't come up with that in your own humanness, in your own intellect. You confessed me as the Christ, the son of the living God, because my father in heaven did a work in you. Supernatural, right? Just naturally came out of Peter. It's not like Peter was, I'm going to speak for God all of a sudden. You know, nothing like that. It's just supernaturally. He spoke this faith, this confession of faith that God placed into his heart. He opened his mind to believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says, No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 says this, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, Jesus speaking, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What Jesus says there real simply is, nobody knows God the Father except me. This would be Jesus saying, and whoever he reveals me to. So this is cool. If you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died on the cross for your sin, if you believe that today, that means that God has done this work in your heart, right? You're witnessing to people that just, man, you wish they would get saved. Listen, they've, they've got to have God do a work in their heart, you know. Um, maybe today you say, I don't know, I can't wrap my mind around this Christianity stuff. I really want to, I, I want to figure this out, you know. And what you should do is just, just honestly get alone with God and just say, if you're real, will you reveal yourself to me? Will you put this sort of thing in me like you did with Peter? And, and if you're real, if you mean that, uh, you know, like if you really want to seek him, You'll find him. You know, he'll, he'll reveal himself to you. And uh, I'm so grateful that he revealed himself to me. I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around this stuff. I couldn't do it. I was like, I thought the Bible, I had bad ideas about all this stuff. And God literally changed my heart. And, and he did that as an act of his grace and mercy. I mean, I couldn't get here intellectually. There was a place where, you know, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, you know, no f- flesh man, paraphrasing, can discern the things of the spirit because he's carnal, because spiritual things are spiritually discerned, right? To believe Jesus Christ is Lord and to have this kind of like, I don't know, I just know that I know that I know, that's because God did a work in your heart and you should praise the Lord for that. You really should. You say, well, I don't know. How come God hasn't done that work? And I don't know. I don't know. But maybe you should ask him. Why don't you ask him? You know, just say, look, reveal yourself to me. If you're real, put this in my heart. Oh, man, that's so exciting to me. It's one thing to know facts about Jesus. It's another thing to have a personal confession of faith that says there's nothing, nothing nobody's going to take this from me. Nothing's going to ever jeopardize this. I know that I know because God did a work in my heart.
That's a work of grace. You know, God could leave humans in their darkness. He could. Um, I know it's a weighty theological concept, you know, and I, I don't want to get too crazy here on a Sunday morning, but um, humans, because they're born dead in trespasses and sins, God is revealing himself through nature. If you examine nature, you find out, wait a minute, there's a creation, there must be a creator. Like it just, it makes sense essentially to logic eventually, eventually pointing towards there's a creator. God's given people a conscience. You do the wrong thing, you know it's wrong. Uh, that's called general revelation. Then there's also special revelation that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit revealing Christ in your heart. And he doesn't have to do that with people. You know, sometimes I thought I did God a favor, you know. <laughs> but it's, he did the greatest thing for me. He took the blinders off of our eyes and showed us who Jesus really is. Oh, that's such a good thing. And he goes on, verse 18, and he says, I say to you that you are Peter. So Peter just had this amazing confession. Jesus just said, hey, you're speaking the word of the Lord. God, the Father, put that in your heart. Way to go, Peter. And so now Jesus goes on and says, and I say to you that you are Peter. His name was Simon, right? Simon Barjona. Now he calls him Peter. The word in the Greek translated Peter is the word Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. And what it means is a small rock. Now, you need to pay attention to this. This is important. He says, I say to you that you are Peter, or you are small stone. You are a small stone. And on this rock, he goes on, and he says, I shall build my church. Now, this word rock translated here, this, this word that's in the Greek that's translated rock is the word Petra. It's different than the, it's not an 80s hair metal band. You guys remember them? Jesus. They got the long hair and the flying V guitar with the, you know what I mean? They look like bumblebees. They're all yellow and striped and striper. Because remember striper? Oh my goodness, I'm old. <laughs> or Petra. Okay, I was thinking of the wrong. Sorry, there's another band called Petra. I just mixed them up. Did you guys go with me on that journey there? You did? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Petra is the other rock band that was like Striper, but they were, you know, a little different. Um, anyway, my uncle gave me their tapes at Christmas. I was like, I don't want this stuff. I want Guns N' Roses. And, you know, anyway, okay, Petra. The word translated rock here is the word Petra, and the meaning of Petra is a large stone or a cliff. There's a difference between Petros and Petra. There's a difference. One is small stone. The other one is large stone. That's really significant. I'll tell you why here in a second. He says, essentially, Simon, you're a small stone, but on this large boulder, I will build my church. Now, Jesus declares here that he will build his church. This is the first time the word church is mentioned in the Bible. And Jesus says, I will build my church. That's exciting. Um, when I learned that I don't have to build the church and that Jesus builds the church, life got so much better you know, for me and you know, for everybody around me. Uh, the children's ministry, you don't need to build the church. Isn't that great? You just need to feed the sheep. You don't need to build the church. Uh, it's not up to you to come up with a marketing campaign and, and do all this stuff to try to get people to come. God will build his church. Amen? That's good, right? You're here because God brought you here, not because we did anything, right? Uh, we're just teaching the word, and, and God's spirit's adding to the church daily. It's awesome. 
the Greek word here translated church, I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff to think about this morning, so the heavy message. Um, it's the word ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. He says, I will build my ekklesia, and ekklesia means the called out ones. Is the church a building? Technically, no. It's the called out ones. It's people. You are the church. I am the church. Christians in Malaysia are the church, in South America, in Chicago Southside. That's the church, the universal church. The called out ones. God selected you and brought you into his church. That's awesome. Now, what is this rock that Jesus says that he will build his church upon? This has been a hotly debated verse for a number of years, thousands of years. And let's talk about it for a second. I've debated about how much I want to get involved in this. uh, But I think it'd be helpful if we... I'm going to show you uh, what I believe and what Protestant theology would say that the, uh, where, what Jesus built his church on. So first of all, how are we going to discern what this rock is that Jesus built on? Well, first of all, I've already told you by looking at the words. Okay, when Jesus says, Peter, Petros, I will build my church on this Petra, Petra. It's, it's like he's saying this, hey, Peter, you're rocky, but I'm going to build my church on this boulder. That's essentially what he's saying in the Greek. So Matthew took care here to use two different words. He did that on purpose. I believe the Holy Spirit's the author of Scripture and it's there for a reason. So that's the first thing we have to have in our mind is the author took great care to delineate, you know, to make a difference, a distinction between what Jesus was saying to Peter and what he's saying to, uh, that he will build his church on. Next thing is I want to show you some cross-references, um, different Bible verses that talk about the foundation and the head of the church. Um, Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. You may just jot these down if this is interesting to you. I'm going to read them. I don't expect you to flip around. Unless you're super Bible nimble, you know, you're like, you can do that if you'd like. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief corner stone. There, that's talking about Jesus being the stone that was rejected by the builders. In other words, he's the stone that was rejected by the Jewish leadership, and he has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, according to what's being said in Acts. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says this, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's talking about the church and what is the foundation of the church. Because that's, here's why I'm pulling these out. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is saying, I will build my church on this rock. And so now we're looking at verses about the foundation of the church. Make sense? Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Another verse about how Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He's the chief cornerstone. Now, 
<clears throat> How does Peter understand what's being said here? I think that's interesting, right? First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, You also, he's talking to Christians, as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying there is like Christians are like living stones that are being built up in the church. Little stones, living stones, right? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? You are a little stone. And Peter's saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that the church is a bunch of little stones, okay? Now, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 going on says, Therefore it is also contained in scriptures, Behold, I lay, a stone, or, uh, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Okay, the reason I point this out, this is important. You might be like, oh my gosh, this is, this is too much. You know, I understand this is, it's a heavy duty Sunday message morning, or a Sunday morning message, right? But when Jesus said that he would build on this rock, some people have interpreted that to mean that the church would be built on Peter, okay? They're saying Peter's the rock and Peter, uh, I call you Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And they say, oh, the church is built on Peter, Right? I don't believe that's what's being said for all those reasons I just laid forth. There's, I could keep going for a long time. But Jesus is the foundation of the church. Um, Peter's the little stone that's, be, you know, Christians are like little stones being built into the church. So what is this confession or what is this foundation? I believe it's the confession that just came out of Peter's mouth, right? What is the rock that Jesus said he would build his church upon? Jesus himself and in that immediate context, the confession of truth. Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus is saying, I will build my called out ones upon this confession that I am the Christ, the Son of God, and the church will be built on him, right? No, that's really important because um, some people say that, you know, Peter, uh, it, the church was built on Peter and he has, you know, ultimate authority. And then what he did was he laid hands on people one after another, prayed for them, and they received authority, and they received authority, and those people have ultimate authority over the church. All of them that Peter laid hands on, one to another, to another, to another, it's called the doctrine of apostolic succession. And they say, Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church upon you, and then you'll lay hands on people, and it'll pass all the way down, and all those people have ultimate authority over the church, right? And those are the popes, by the way, okay? That to me, it's clear, not just to me, but it's clear there that that's not what this means. There's not a hint of that in the scriptures, okay? That's taught through church tradition, um, but the early church didn't believe that, and the scriptures don't teach that, okay? Now, he goes on and says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's good news, right? Death won't prevail against the church. Isn't that so good? You're the church. You're the body of Christ. You can go where it's completely dangerous to do ministry in the name of Jesus and set up a church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Isn't that cool? I mean, nothing's going to stop the church. Nothing's going to stop his spirit at work through people and his called out ones. That's awesome. 
And he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, you ready for some more? <laughs> because uh, we're going to have to think through this one too. So Peter, you're this little stone, but on this big rock, I'm going to build my church, the confession of who Jesus is, he's the Christ. And you'll have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, these aren't literal keys, right? It's not like you've got a you know, set of keys hanging in your temple and, oh, those are the keys that um, Jesus gave to Peter. You know, we still got them. By the way, they did have those in the Vatican for a while, supposedly. Okay. It's just, you know, and I don't want to have a bad attitude about any of this stuff. I'm just, I just want to expose this stuff because, you know, I want to do this in humility. You know what I mean? It's, it's just good to look at this. Um, debated whether I should even mention this stuff, but I think it's important because this has led to some really terrible things um, in this world. Really terrible. If, he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, not literal keys. These are the gospel. Okay, Peter, you'll see Peter in Acts chapter 2 open the door to the kingdom of heaven to the Jews. He preaches this sermon, says, you killed Jesus. They said, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And great, he opened the door. Acts chapter 8, the door was opened to the Sumerians. Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house, the church was open to the Gentiles. Peter had the keys to open. In that sense, he's got the keys. You have the keys in that sense. You have the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the story that a man died on a cross to forgive for sins, it's like a key in a sense, right? The gospel is like sort of a key to heaven. If I give you that key and I say, look, Jesus Christ died for your sin and you need forgiveness, and then you decide to reject that, heaven's locked to you. If you decide to accept that, heaven's open to you. So in that sense, every Christian has the keys to the kingdom. And he goes and he says in verse 19 going on, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This verse has been so hijacked and mangled. It's so crazy. Um, in other words, what he's saying here is, Peter, if you say a person is forgiven of their sin based on the standard of the word of God, then they're loosed. You know, like if they're forgiven, they're loosed of their sin. If you say, no, you're still dead in trespasses and sins because you don't confess, you don't repent and confess Jesus as Lord, then they're still bound. And so it's not that Peter has authority to change what's going on in heaven, but he does have the authority to pronounce what is bound and loosed in heaven in that sense. Now, this term binding and loosing, it was an idiom that, Jewish, that Jews used to use, especially rabbis, when they were delineating, when they were, when they were describing what was acceptable and unacceptable behavior for their followers. Um, you know, should I do this behavior? No, that's bound. Should I do this behavior? No, that's loosed. It has to do with sin, right? Now, this interpretation that, you know, Peter had the keys and then therefore all the people that he laid hands on, they had the keys and they were all passed down to all the popes and the popes have the determination then to determine, or they have the authority to determine who goes into heaven and who stays out. And the pope can decide that in Roman Catholic theology. He's above the scriptures. He's infallible. To this day, they, they consider him, if, if I'm talking, if you're an Orthodox, you know, 
legit, like believing Catholic theology, the Pope has the right to say and do anything. He's infallible because he has, through apostolic succession, he's become the vicar of Christ. He's the, you know, he's the anointed one that had the authority passed down from Peter all the way down through Clement to Rome, all the way down to uh, the Pope today. And he has ultimate authority to decide who gets into heaven and who gets out of heaven, right? And that's how they interpret these verses, right? Now, here's the thing. If you turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, you see that this same authority to bind and loose has been given to all the disciples and in effect all the church, okay? So that negates right away that Peter was the only one that had this sort of authority, I know I'm giving you guys a ton to think about here, but I can tell most of you are, you know, tracking along, so we'll keep going. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, listen carefully. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even, even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. So that's church discipline, right? It's talking about sin. If there's a guy that's sinning in the church, gal that's sinning in the church, you work up this chain of discipline. First of all, you warn them. Then you bring another brother. Then you get the pastor and the church involved. If they refuse to repent, you kick him out of the church. That's what it's talking about there. Okay. And then he says in verse 18 of Matthew 18, Assuredly, I say to you, now that word you, again, is plural. So it's directed at all of the people that are being spoken to. And I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's the proper context for binding and loosing, okay? This verse has also been hijacked by the hyper-charismatics. They say that you have the authority to bind the work of Satan through your prayers, that is not a scriptural idea at all. And you don't have the authority. Jesus has the authority to do whatever he wants in the spiritual realm, but you don't. That's, that is taking this verse completely out of context. And, and to say that I have the authority to bind and loose the powers of Satan and, and all this different stuff and, and release the blessings of God, that is an invention of the word of faith movement and the hyper-charismatics. So, all right. Okay, his ears are smoking. We're up here like, whoa. <laughs> um, okay. This is the power that the Lord gives to all believers to bind and lose. To say, look, if you've got somebody in your life and they're continuing on in sin and death, and, and you say, look, you, you've got to repent of that stuff because right now you're bound. You're bound in sin. And all I'm doing is declaring what's going on in heaven. And I do have that authority as a believer to declare what God's word says. I do have that authority right? Now, if you come and say, yeah, you're right, man, I got to repent. And they come to the church and they say, I'm done with my life of sin and debauchery and whatever. I got to repent. Then you say, hey, you, you know, you've been loosed according to what the scripture says. You're loosed of that. You're free. You know, you're no longer bound in trespasses and sins, right? It's a beautiful thing. And so Jesus said on this confession that I am the Christ, the son of God, I will build my church upon that. And you believers, you church, you will have this privilege of having this authority of declaring the word of God to the world. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. No. That apostolic succession thing, I want to make one more comment about it. 
even if Peter was given some sort of special thing, there's no hint of it that he ever passed it on to anybody else in the scriptures. There's no hint of that, that Peter laid hands on anybody and prayed, and then they received the keys, and then the next person received the keys. There's no hint of that in scripture whatsoever. And Matthew 18, 18 blows it out of the water because it just says, it says the same authority has been given to all of them, right? Which by extension is us too. It's all Christians. So apostolic succession cannot be true if what's said in here is true. So, verse 20, then Jesus commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Can you imagine? You've just heard the best thing ever and you're not supposed to tell anybody? I don't know, man. Holy cow, two minutes left. I knew it was going to be a work of the Lord if this got done. We're going to uh, wrap this up next time. So that's where we're at. Um, we can't do any more today. It's 1128, and um, I'm trying to be really good. I know you guys have kids, and it's children's ministries back there. We've got to be respectful of everybody's time. And um, listen, isn't it good that no man has authority over you to determine your spiritual destiny? Isn't that a good thing? The one thing that determines your spiritual destiny here today is what you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the one thing. If, if, you're not, if you haven't met Jesus in this way, if you don't know him as the Christ, as the true living son of God, I want you to think about what, what he said to Peter, where he said, Peter, you didn't come to this through intellect. My father put this in you. Maybe you're sensing today Jesus at work in you. Maybe, maybe you're sensing something. Maybe God has put something in you that says there's something to this Jesus more than I knew about, you know? And maybe God's drawing you. Maybe this is your time, you know, to respond to that. And so you would say the same thing as Peter, you know, whether you do it in the quiet of your heart or however you would do it. And you would say, you know, maybe I can be the mouthpiece here just to ask you, who do you say Jesus is? If I could go around to each, every one of you individually and just say, who do you say Jesus is, right? Because who you say and who you believe he is, is, that's a determining question right there. What you do with Jesus is determining. Whether you understand end times fully, whether you're a Calvinist, Arminianist, a cessationist, a Bibleist, an ist-ist, it doesn't matter. Like, that stuff's fine, you know, and it's fun. But at the end of the day, what you do with Jesus, that is the determining factor, you know. And so who do you say that he is? If you don't know him today, that's what you do is you respond to God's work in your heart, you know. You respond to God's work in your heart. You just say, man, maybe he's been gnawing at your conscience. Maybe life has become extremely empty That can be a work of God. Maybe you're looking around and saying, most of the things I spend my time on and I'm getting engaged in are just, it's just empty, you know? There's got to be something more to all this. There is something more to all this. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, you know? You're looking around trying to find meaning and purpose in things that there is no meaning and purpose ultimately. You're thirsty and you come in and you drink salt water. That's why God's at work in your heart. He's showing you the emptiness of life apart from him. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him.
this is a work of his grace, all this stuff, that he would reveal himself to any of us. It's a work of his grace that there is no mediator between God and man except for the one man, Christ Jesus. We'll stop there today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word here today and for blessing us with it. And Lord, we can sincerely thank you for revealing yourself to us in our hearts and and letting us know um, who you are. Thank you for doing that spiritual work in us. Lord, I do pray for anybody here today that maybe has been um, experiencing that feeling. Uh, There's got to be more Lord, that even now in this moment, you'd open their spiritual eyes, that you would open their hearts, Lord, to understand that you are that, you are that something more. You're everything. I pray that you would do that now, Lord. Heavenly Father, may we be vessels of your grace and your mercy. May we treat others with the same mercy and grace that you treat us with. May we be a church, Lord, that's not so focused on um, what makes us different, but may we just be a church that's focused on getting you and to, to people, to people in our community. Father, thank you for your work and for your Holy Spirit who teaches us spiritual things. Bless this word to our hearts, Lord, and may our weeks be filled with encouragement that you love us with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name, amen.